You're listening to Asia-Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. China's challenges are snowballing from its slumping stock market to its property crisis to a generation lying flat. The world's second largest economy also faces structural challenges, including an aging workforce, a shrinking population, high household debt, and low consumer confidence. The ripple effects reach far beyond China's borders, and the implications for Asia and the global economy are too important to ignore. How will China's tough choices shape the road ahead? And what are the implications for the rest of the global economy? Let's bring in Hao Hong, chief economist at Grow Investment Group. He joins us from Hong Kong. Hao, welcome to Asia Centric. It's great to be here, Tom. Hi, Hao. Global investors have been dumping Chinese stocks since July last year. They've sold almost $25 billion. The CSI 300 index is down almost 50% from its all-time highs. Do you think all this negativism is warranted? I think the market is getting way too pessimistic. But then at the same time, you know, you can't blame them for not getting a general sense of where the market and also the economy is heading. Um, China has met a number of challenges since it reopened. Right? So, for example, the property sector is behaving very differently from the past cycle in the sense that, you know, in this cycle, we have introduced many stimulative policies trying to rekindle housing demand, but for some reason, we failed and failed again. Right? So because of that, housing price continue to decline. So that gives Chinese households a sense of dwindling household wealth. Uh, and also, you know, because of that, the outlook on Chinese households' income uh, and also the Chinese households' um, uh, job stability uh, is imperiled. So as a result, you know, people become more cautious or even pessimistic, and therefore they're not going out to buy stocks. And therefore, this economic cycle seems to be still trying to find the bottom after more than a year of reopening. Yeah, you mentioned stimulus. There's been a number of measures, but do you think uh, this has been enough to reboot the economy? Normally, it should have been working already, but I think this cycle is very different in the sense that over the past 20 years, China has been building up manufacturing capacities to meet foreign demand. And ever since 2018, uh, Donald Trump initiated the trade war. Suddenly, you're seeing the um, potential for falling foreign demand for Chinese exports. And also the pandemic sort of taught the Western customers a lesson that, you know, they have to have their own manufacturing facilities, right? So otherwise, you know, when disasters such as the pandemic hit, then they will find the domestic demand hard to be met, you know, by domestic production facilities. So I think as a result, you know, as you can see, you know, the overseas market who are traditionally Chinese export customers, they are building their own supply chain to meet domestic demand. And also because of the glowing rift between China and the West, <laughs> it sort of dimmed the outlook for Chinese exports as well. So I'm really surprised to see it going into 2024, demand for Chinese exports continue to dwindle. And this aggravates the oversupply situation in China. How Hong, half or more than half of the world's population live in markets holding elections this year. The U.S., Taiwan, Indonesia, Britain, Bangladesh, India, among others. The heavyweight of this group is probably the U.S. 
How big an impact is that outcome going to have on China's economy, and what's at stake? Yeah, that's a very pungent question. In a sense, that this year is a critical year. All right, so after all, you know, China has been spending most of the past one year trying to find a bottom of the cycle. I think this year the U.S. election adds to the challenge for China in two ways. One, I think being hawkish to China now, you know, is becoming a bipartisan view in the U.S. voters.、Uh, so the more hawkish a candidate gets towards China, probably the more votes he or she is going to get. And secondly, I think during the election year,、um, the U.S. government tend to spend big to sort of keep the economy going, right? So statistics show that if the economy is going well, it's good news for the sitting president to get elected again, right? So as you can see, if the U.S. continues to spend big, the U.S. fiscal deficit is between six to eight percent, right? So it's been at this level for a couple of years now. That's one of the reasons why the U.S. economy is doing very well, exceedingly well. But that also limits how much the U.S. inflation can come down, and therefore it limits the monetary policy scope for China. If you look at 2023 and 2022, one of the biggest factors that have been affecting Chinese economy and the market is the yield gap between U.S. and China, and therefore the downward pressure, the depreciation pressure on the Chinese yuan. So I think as a result, you know, if the U.S. Fed cannot lower its interest rate by much because of the U.S. inflationary outlook, then the scope for monetary policy choice in China is limited. And how how much debt is the Chinese economy in? Now the U.S. has got a lot of debt, but the economy seems to be doing quite well. Do you think the amount of debt is a problem for China? There are three balances in in the Chinese economy, right? So the central、yeah. government, as you know, the balance sheet is very clean. Central government debt to GDP ratio is about thirty five forty percent, and I think it's one of the cleanest balance sheet, you know, in in the much lower than the US for right government.、Yeah. <laughs> but but if you look at the、uh, Chinese household, you know, because of the past twenty five years of breakneck property development, Chinese household has been leveraged by properties, and so by now, if you look at the Chinese household. The debt to GDP ratio is about three to three and a half times. It's almost the same, and also the pace at which the Chinese household has been adding on leverage, especially in recent years, is very similar to the Japanese household prior to the Japanese bubble burst in the early nineties. Right, so it's concerning. I think it is also one of the reasons why the Chinese households have been quite reluctant to take on even more leverage to buy properties this time around. You know, because they have already enough debt. On their balance sheet, and also if you look at the Chinese households' home ownership ratio, is the highest in the world. I think ninety to ninety-five percent of the Chinese household, according to survey, has already owned their own home. Alright, so how many more homes can you buy on a, a limited income? If you add the Chinese central government's、uh, balance sheet and also the local government balance sheet, as, as you know, you know we have、uh, probably two to three times debt to GDP ratio on the Chinese. Local government balance sheet. So as a result, you know when you add that all up, it's three to three and a half times、uh, GDP. Right. So it's it's high. It's it's not the highest in the but world, but it's very very high. How Hong, you've talked about household wealth and home ownership as a source of household wealth. You know, China is more or less home to 
what could be the largest consumer class the world has ever seen. India may take it over soon, but how big a role will consumer confidence or the lack of it play in China's continued economic struggle or recovery? Yeah, I think confidence is a function of household income because the marginal capacity to consume tend to be relatively stable. Right? So, you know, right now you're seeing layoff announcements here and there, and also some of the government agencies' staffs not getting paid because of the local government are on a shoestring budget. Uh, and then I think the young graduates who were graduating last year are finding it very difficult to get jobs. Right, so, you know, for me, because I'm, I'm, I'm expanding the business here and I'm hiring people, the number of resumes and the quality of resumes I've seen is the highest ever. It's good news for me who are trying to hire in, in such a market. They give me more choice, but then at the same time, it's bad news for people who are looking for jobs, you know, because they have a lot of competition and it's a very competitive labor market. As a result, the Chinese household confidence seems to be stabilized. So it's not worsening, but then at the same time, it's staying at an all-time low level and not recovering fast enough. So I think as a result, you know, it's affecting people's consumption behavior. For example, if you look at recent earnings results from European luxury goods retailers, they are reporting, especially like watches of Switzerland, right? So they're reporting substantially weaker demand for luxury watches in China. And also if you look at the secondary market for luxury watches, you're seeing prices down 50% already. It shows you that demand for you know, luxury goods are dwindling. And also if you look at the spirits and expensive wines consumption, uh, it's down more than 50%, right? sometimes 80%. Right? So many of the foreign wine and spirit retailers in China are finding it tough at this moment. All this anecdotal evidence telling you that um, consumers' confidence is very weak, and because of the outlook of the job stability and a very competitive labor market, they're finding it very difficult to cope, and therefore they're consuming less. And there's a, an obvious consumption downgrade happening in the Chinese economy as well. How does a turnaround unfold? That's tough. I mean, it's been more than a year now. It's, it's not turning around. <laughs> so every time you wow. know, we have a golden week, we're seeing, wow, you know, the train tickets are hard to come by. You know, the train station is packed with people. But then at the same time, the spend per order per passenger is substantially less than before. People now are foregoing their overseas trips and instead of for domestic destinations. This winter, skating in Harbin, which was one of the big cities in northeastern China, is becoming popular. But I think going there, you know, you probably spend a couple of hundred yuan uh, per person. That would give you enough fun because things are so much cheaper in northeastern China, which is a traditional industrial base for the Chinese economy. All this evidence is just telling you that it takes a long time. And I think right now, if I tell you, I know how it can be turned around, I'll be lying. I think, you know, people just don't have any clue. And if you look at the Japanese experience, right? So the Japanese, after the property bubble burst, they spent 20 to 30 years mired in the bottom of the cycle, you know, trying to find a way out all the way until 2012, after the Tokyo earthquake, the Japanese government initiated the uh, aggressive monetary easing and three arrow policies and physical stimulus and then the Japanese households gradually get out of the deleveraging cycle and start to re-leverage. 
right? So I think one of the, the measures that we can sort of follow is the uh, household leverage ratio. If the household leverage ratio is down substantially after a few years and then start to re-leverage up again, then we can say that, you know, we're out of the woods. But I think right now we're still a long way from there. And how, um, if I could talk about some of the structural issues facing China, you know, when I was preparing for this podcast, uh, I came up with a laundry list. The list is quite long. There's there's a deflationary uh-huh. aspect. There's the aging population. Obviously, we talked about a lot of debt. I know. But I found the most interesting structural headwind is this lying flat phenomenon. Can you explain to listeners yeah. what this is? Lying flat basically is a new phenomenon or new ideas initiated by the younger generation of Chinese. The younger Chinese now firstly find working in an office come with a very low pay. Right? And secondly, they're working 24-7 for the benefits of their bosses. The mentality is that you work yourself to death you know, to help your boss to buy a bigger house, get a better life. Right? So you might as well you know, spend the time for yourself by enjoying life a bit more, etc., etc., And I think in short, it's a reflection of the social glass ceiling imposed upon younger generation of Chinese. Uh, so they're seeing the way they can break through their social class is limited. Uh, so back then, for example, before 1990s and also in, in the 1980s, uh, one of the easiest way to get ahead, to break through your social class is through the Gaokao, the uh, National University Entrance Exam. So by excelling in this exam, you get into a good university and therefore you get good jobs and good pays and your life is set. Sometimes you, if you work for an SOE agency, they would even give you an apartment if you continue to work there, So, which is a huge plus for the young graduates back then. But I think after 2000, I mean, the, uh, the social norms change substantially. Right? So people become more materialistic and, you know, very eager to get ahead. So after the 2000s, you know, one of the popular ways to get ahead is for women to marry rich guys. And yeah. so, so it's, <laughs> it's a, not just China. That's one way. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's one of the ways to break through the uh, social glass ceiling. And then I think later on, after 2010, um, things start to change further in the sense that after 2010, property price becomes exceedingly expensive or prohibitively expensive. So even for a young Chinese person, you know, he or she work day and night, very long hours, I think the take-home pay is very little, right? So as a result, the wage as a percentage of Chinese GDP is one of the lowest in the world uh, when you compare with country on the same development level. So you can't blame the young Chinese for lying flat because they don't see a way out. No matter how hard you work, you can't break through this glass ceiling that is imposed upon you. And also another ingredient to this phenomenon is that the Chinese parents, now they're probably in their late 40s, early 50s, they went through the golden age of Chinese reform and open. Ever since 1978, China initiated a form and open. Also in the early 90s, uh, Deng Xiaoping, a sudden tour. The Chinese economy has been going really fast, right? Those are the golden years of the Chinese economic development in the sense that annual GDP growth rate is 10 plus percent real. I think the parents who are in their early 50s now, they have accumulated certain level of family wealth and also they own maybe two or three apartments. 
right? So they're well off, and they don't want to see their kids suffer in a dingy office doing meaningless jobs and getting very little pay. So I think as a result, you know, a phenomenon that is happening concurrently, you know, with the lying flat symptoms is that many of the younger Chinese chose to stay home, unemployed, and uh, living off their parents. Uh, so it's a social phenomenon, uh, and I think you know it also have a very big impact on a young Chinese view on marriage, on family, on having kids, and therefore last year, 2023, was the second year in a row that we're seeing Chinese population starting to shrink. And how Hong, a lot of those young Chinese, some of them are staying home, but others are looking abroad and they're going abroad. Many are coming here to Hong Kong in pursuit of what they see as better opportunity. What do you see on that trend? I think uh, the Hong Kong government is fighting a talent war. Uh, so it relaxed the skill-based immigration for younger Chinese people. Now, the problem with uh, this sort of new skill-based immigration rule is that you know many of the Chinese from my observation, they come, they take the Hong Kong ID and go back to China. Right? So they don't actually live here, find a job, uh, start a family uh, and settle down. Right? So even though it's a very good initiative, but I think right now it's not working as well as planned and some more needs to be done to attract mainland Chinese talents to Hong Kong. How Hong, monetary policy. There's a talk that a March cut from the U.S. Central Bank is less likely now than a month ago. Any thoughts on when the U.S. Federal Reserve will start cutting and what are the implications for China? Well, I think um, a March cut is priced at 30%. Right? So I think the actual probability is substantially less than that. The Fed probably is not going to move until middle of this year. Now, the reason being, uh, just now we mentioned the physical deficit in the U.S. government and also the likelihood for the existing government to spend big this year to win the election is huge. Uh, so we don't see a substantial cut to the U.S. government deficit this year. So I think as a result, the U.S. economy will perform about reasonably well this year and therefore the room for aggressive uh, monetary easing or aggressive benchmark interest rate cut by the Fed is actually less likely. If you look at the Chinese yuan, I mean, obviously the Chinese yuan, even though now the exchange rate is largely determined by market forces, but it is still heavily intervened by the Chinese central bank. Right? So it's the linkage of the Chinese economy to the outside world. In the past two years, one of the most important factors that has been influencing the Chinese economy and also the Chinese market is the yuan. And a substantially weakened yuan would put pressure on the Chinese asset prices and also on foreigners' confidence in China. So I think if you look at the relationship between the US-China yield gap and the direction of how the Chinese currency is traveling, you see an almost one-to-one -one correlation between the yield gap and the Chinese exchange rate, yuan exchange rate. As a result, if the U.S. Fed has less scope than expected to cut interest rate, and therefore the policy choices for the Chinese Central Bank is limited as well, then obviously there's another policy that the Chinese government can choose, which is the physical policy. In 2023, the Chinese physical deficit is about 3.8%. But I think 1 trillion yuan of that 
this done in the fourth quarter, towards the end of the fourth quarter, actually. So, you know, it's a very small budget deficit considering the economic challenging or the economic headwinds that we're facing. Going into 2024, if you have limited monetary policy to work with, then you may choose to use a more stimulative, more expansionary physical policy to get the economy going. Um, I think right now we're not seeing clear indication from the government just yet, you know, regarding how best to use the physical policy to stimulate the Chinese economy. But on the monetary policy alone, the options is being constrained by the choice of monetary policy by the US Fed. Now, before we let you go, I feel like we have to ask, is there anything positive about the China economy? Is there any, is there any uh, sectors or companies that are thriving in this environment? Uh, good question. Yeah, because um, we've been so one-sided in our discussion. And yeah, we forget about some of the good things that is happening in the Chinese economy. All right. So, I mean, every corn has two sides. You know, for example, the line flash phenomenon that we discussed just now, you're seeing Chinese starting to have a life. Young people in my company, they're starting to go home early. Right? They refuse to work over time. But when I try to find people to work over the weekends, I always find myself working alone. It's good and bad in the sense that people are starting to have a life. And the Chinese fate in the past 40 years, since the reform in open, has been you know, working our ass off to meet foreign demands, basically. Right? So we're building up capacities, excess capacities. We're working uh, our life to meet foreign demands and in so doing to generate more income to have a better life. Right, so now, since the Chinese uh, GDP is about 13,000 US dollars per cap, and many of the coastal cities that you've been to, you will notice that it's very developed. So I would say that now people start to realize a balance in life is probably more important than just money. Right, so that's good. And I think secondly, since the pandemic, China has been rebuilding itself, reshaping its supply chain. Now the Chinese exports are higher value added. You know, for example, the Chinese EVs, solar panels, uh, some of the semiconductor equipments, they are very high value added. If you look at 2023, these sectors contribute more to GDP than the uh, traditional property sector. So this is the economic structure that we want to have. But then at the same time, you know, because the Chinese learning curve has been so steep and the Chinese value-added industry has been exporting like this no tomorrow, it's cutting the lunch of the U.S. manufacturers and also the European manufacturers as well. So as a result, you know, such dramatic progress in these industries tend to invite some of the trade sanction retaliations from many of these trading partners. Right, so if you look at the Chinese trade surplus, it's about 80 trillion US dollars per month. Right, so it's just huge. It's never happened in human history. So I think as a result, we've already seen some discussions on the US side regarding putting tariffs on Chinese exports. I wouldn't be surprised to see the European councils would put on similar measures, you know, because the Chinese EVs are just cutting the lunch of Mercedes-Benz and BMWs. So let's wait and see. So it's good and bad. China is moving up the value chain. It's no longer a sweatshop uh, manufacturing place, the world's factory. Uh, it is now adding more value to the global economy. But then at the same time, you know, it's bound to create conflict of interest, commercial interest between China and the West. 
We've been talking China, its economy, its people, and its future with Hao Hong, chief economist at Grow Investment Group in Hong Kong. Hao, great conversation, great insights, and thanks for sharing them on Asia Centric. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, John Tong. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong, and I'm John Lee. This podcast was produced by Clara Chen, and you've been listening to the Asia Centric podcast. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.